want to ask you what your thoughts are regarding success. You see, it's natural for us when, when we read a passage like that versus what we do in the world, how we view things, how we view, you know, what's successful in life. This is the way the world thinks. The world thinks that, you know, it's power, not weakness, that we want. If you have that power, then you have success. And so we think about this, and, and this is the way we, we view things in life. We want someone who's stronger, not weaker. That's a natural thing. I mean, that's why we exercise, right? We go to the gym to work out, to build up the muscles as far as maybe for work purposes, maybe just to, to keep us healthy or what have you, but we want to be stronger, not weaker. And so we look at it from a physical standpoint. We want to be faster, not slower. We want to be effective in the things that we do, so we want someone who's going to be quick at getting their work done rather than take too long, or we want someone who's smarter. And I know it's not a political, politically acceptable word, dumber, but we don't want to be dumber. We want to be smarter. We'd rather have someone good-looking than ugly. It sounds so mean saying stuff like that. But that's really what we look for. Why is that? Why is it that it's that good-looking person, whatever that qualifies as, and that changes from culture to culture, that that's the one who becomes class president in school? <laughs> that's the one who becomes one of those, those leaders, and typically that's what you'll see. And you even see it in the Bible, as we will this morning. But you see, that's the way we work naturally, that is from a fleshly standpoint. And when it comes to the Lord and His work, sometimes we bring that fleshly mindset across in the way we go about the business of our Lord's kingdom. We don't want to necessarily admit that, but it does happen from time to time. That's what we look for. And there are qualities like this that are not wrong in and of themselves. I mean, I would rather a doctor who has had his degree, studied well, work on my organs than someone who's never done it. So, you know, there's a good time and place contextually for someone who's smarter, if you will, someone who's stronger because you need them to do a particular task with that strength and so on and so forth. But the thing is, when it comes to the work of our Lord, sometimes we forget to see its place. And we look at the physical, the outward acts of what goes on, and we sometimes forget the spiritual qualities. So when it comes to the work of the Lord, we miss out on some of the things that the Scriptures will teach us. The reason why this is a problem is because when we start looking at those external things, like someone who's smarter, someone who's stronger, someone who's faster, so on and so forth, we begin to exalt in that individual. Maybe it's the Bible class teacher. And so you go to certain Bible class teacher because, well, number one, they're a better speaker. It's easier to listen to them, right? But pretty soon what happens is we put that speaker up on, on that high pedestal because of that ability that they have. Maybe it's the song leader. And so we, what we end up doing is, while they have great qualities and those qualities have its place, we begin to exalt in the individual rather than our God. And that is a problem. The exaltation we get comes from God. The, the exaltation that we give to one another should be given to our God expressly. And those are the things that I'm hoping that we can look at this morning very quickly 
believe it or not, it is a shorter lesson. <laughs> Some of them might like that. But I'm wanting you to focus on that one point. That we would look at each other in a humble fashion, that we look in ourselves and see humility within us and exude that humility so that every form of praise, every exaltation that we give, will belong to our Heavenly Father. Brethren, we do that. And we're well pleasing to our God. I want us to note this case in point. I want to talk about two kings. It'll be Saul and David. And I want you to note that, you know, when we go through the scripture, sometimes like when we read in First uh, Samuel, or in this case Second Samuel, can read of, of our kings. I want you to note the reason why the author of this book wrote what he did. It's not just here's a historical rendering of what went on in the history of Israel. There's a reason why that these writers wrote, and I believe in, in the, the context of what's going on here, that it was to encourage the brethren, the Israelites, to know who is faithful to God and what faithfulness that they needed to, to have in their lives. So note this point as a case study. When in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people of Israel, they wanted so desperately to have their own king. By now, Samuel's sons, they're corrupt, immoral men. And these people see the kings that are surrounding them, and they want that. They want to have a king that they can go after, follow after in his lead. And they have in their minds who they would want as a king, if you will. Not necessarily by name, but by those very attributes that we looked at in the very first slide. I want you to look at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and note what's being said here and note some, some of those qualities that are external, the things that we look at from an out, outward perspective, if you will. Look at the first couple of verses in the text here. It says, There's a man of Benjamin whose name was uh, Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorah, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. He had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, who would you want leading the army, leading everyone to battle? That guy with those humongous muscles who just stood head and shoulders above the rest. His father was a mighty man of valor. That lineage, I mean, just look at the lineage of the Benjamites, for that matter. The Benjamites, remember how they fought against all of Israel, those immoral Benjamites from just a couple of generations ago? Read that in the book of Judges. They were valiant fighters. And here's the reputation of Benjamin. And one of his descendants, this Saul, who comes from a small family, from one of these small, almost annihilated tribes, is a valiant warrior, or the son of one. That would be a great king. He's got great pedigree. When God had him to be chosen as that first king, you know what the people said? No. We're more spiritually minded than that. <laughs> That's not what they said, right? They all were excited to have Saul as their king. And he proved himself as 
as a warrior in the very beginning. And yes, he was a humble man when we can look at scriptures. But I want you to see something that shows this problem. Go on to chapter 16, and we'll read ahead as we transition between this Saul and, and the following king, King David. When David was going to be appointed the next king, notice what God says in contrast with the Israelites. Just as Samuel, who is a wonderful spiritual leader in, in various aspects, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature regarding this, this person he's going to anoint as king. Because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This morning, as Terry Lynn was entertaining our family, as cute as she can be, I looked over at Levi and said, Levi, you're a handsome boy. I take that back. It was Dan. I said that. I forget who it was. <laughs> but I remember saying to one of my children, I said, son, you know why you're handsome? I said, it's not because of the way you look on your face. It's your heart. And there's one truth, at least as far as I'm concerned, that really stands out. My children do look more handsome and more pretty when their hearts are beautiful. They really do. When the hearts are ugly, they kind of look ugly. God looks at the heart of an individual. Now, this is nothing that we don't already know. We know these things. But sometimes we forget it from a standpoint of the day-to-day -day living and the things that need to get done, and we look for that one that unfortunately turns into an individual that is exalted rather than God himself. And you know the problem that, that when people saw Saul as their king, it got to him. And it got to his head. We see by the time you get later on in the reading in 1 Samuel, that he became rebellious. He was haughty, he was arrogant in his own eyes. Kingship, if you will, got to him. And that's why when you read 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see the difference in Saul and in his life. But don't you look at verse 20 21 in chapter 9. Notice this about him. Notice where he started out. Saul answered as far as the conversation between he and, and Samuel, as Samuel is anointing him, or going to anoint him as the next king. He says, am I not a Benjamite? Of the smallest of the tribes of Israel. And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin. Why do you speak like this to, to me? Here's a king that was rejected later on because of his rebelliousness. He started out with great humility. And what happens is that when people look to this person and say, Wow, this is our king. Look at who we have. It eventually got to a humble man with humble beginnings. The problem with exalting this man as king was the fact that they were not exalting God. And remember what God told Samuel? Samuel so distraught over the fact that Israel wanted to have their own king. He said, listen, Samuel, it's not your fault. They haven't rejected you. 
It rejected me. And that rejection was on various levels. The fact that they wanted a king when they already had one, and the fact that they would be looking to this man and lifting him up high. But notice then when we get to David in his life, and I want to preface this by stating, we already know that David was not a perfect man, right? We know that. I mean, when you read the Kings and read Second Samuel, you can read of the sins that David was engaged in. But God then chose this David because of the character he knew David had as his next king. And it would be in such grave contrast between Saul and David that this would be a lesson for the Israelites to note what is well-pleasing to God and who is well-pleasing to God. In fact, when you read in Acts chapter 13 when the gospel message was being spread, there's a reference back to David who's a man after God's own heart. Here is a young man, a boy, if you will, who is going to eventually become king. Can you imagine? Just a young lad, never really any experience on the battleground. And what was his determination regarding Goliath? He says, give him to me. Because I know that it is God who fights our battles. Can you imagine when Goliath looked at him? Laughed. That this flea would even think of going up against him. But David had a mindset at a young age that was so wonderful that our young can have right now. And that is we look beyond this physical. And we see the spiritual things knowing that our God is an awesome God He is the one that fights our battles for us. And the things that I do, I'll do by faith, knowing that God will give the increase. And so here is a man who God was going to have as king. And we see this person with great, great insight as to the reflection of God. He exalted in God. You can read in 1 Chronicles, it's like the 105th Psalm or 15th Psalm and other Psalms that you can read of where David would over and over, just as given in First Chronicles, exalt in God. Remember when the ark was coming back? It had been away from Israel for a while, been with the Philistines. God cursed them. Eventually, the ark is brought back to Jerusalem. And David humbles himself, is among even the, the servants, the low-class people. And he praises God's name and all that he had done so that the nations would be exalting our God. That's what we have. In fact, I want you to notice when you read 1 Chronicles chapter 16. I want you to notice this. Go back to the beginning in your mind. If you could start off back in the book of Exodus. And remember, here's a very young nation that God is saying, I'm going to make you my people. You'll come out and you'll be separate from these nations. These people never had any experience at war. I mean, they've been in Egypt for hundreds of years. Can you imagine when when God is sending them out? The Egyptian army was not going to let them by virtue of Pharaoh. And God is saying, you come out. These people would wander in a 
vast wilderness of desolation, if you will, there's nothing for them, for millions possibly. God was going to protect them. God was going to provide for them. Whether it be enemies or resources for them. Didn't have any weapons, real military weapons to use. And notice what God had done for them. And notice the praise that is given for them in First Chronicles 16. It is a beautiful, beautiful text. I want to read the whole thing. It's, it's a short, long reading as far as your verses here, but short as far as what's being said. And notice the attitude behind this and the exaltation that is given to our God. In First Chronicles 16, beginning in verse 8, backing up to verse 7, it says, On that day David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Talk of all His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His faith evermore. Remember His marvelous works which He done. His wonders and judgments of His mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, your children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And confirmed it to Jacob for a statute. To Israel for an everlasting covenant saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance when you are few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. When they went from one nation to another and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth, Proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His wonders among all peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of all the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before Him. Strength and gladness are in His place. Give to the Lord, O families of the people. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. Let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Did you get that? The purpose behind all the praise, all the exaltation that was given to God was so that the world would know who he was. We're here living today to proclaim his name, to lift up his name. That's what we were doing in prayer and in the songs that we had. I was so glad we had that song, Exalted. How perfect. That's why we're here on earth, to give him the glory. That's the reason why we seek and save those who are lost. That attitude is so that God's name would be magnified. That's exactly what he said in rebuking the Israelites, when you can read the book of Malachi, that his name would be great among the nations. 
But Israel, who had a relationship with God, that understood this in the beginning, forgot soon enough. How about, I mean, there's so many illustrations we could give. How about in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8, about Gideon? Here is Gideon being oppressed by the Midianites, among others, and there's over 135,000 coming against him. Before they actually went to war, the Midianites would come into the land and lick up the land like, like locusts, if you will, or like wild ox. Just annihilate, destroy that land. Well, at some point, they're coming in against Israel again, and God has chosen Gideon to lead them. Gideon doesn't seem to be the kind of person that you want. You know, he doesn't have that reputation, if you will, from birth to his life among rebels. Yet God chose him. And when he gathered the army, when Gideon was asked to gather the army, there were over 22,000 among the, the people of Israel who were able to, to fight. And God has Gideon to say, now listen, all of you who are afraid, you go home. And out of the 22,000, 12,000 went on home. You have 10,000 now going up of an army of more than 135,000. Does that seem fair? I mean, take God out of the picture. Does that seem fair? There's no way Israel can go against them. What was God's words to Gideon? Look at Judges 7. Look at what is being said here. I find this a wonderful passage that lets us know this very principle of exalting in our God. In Judges 7, beginning in verse 4, the Lord said to Gideon, after there was these uh, 10,000, He said, the people are still too many. 10,000 versus 135 plus. Too many. Let's see. We'll just make it 13,000 versus 130,000. That's 10%. One of you for every 10 of them? No. Not good. Here's the reason why. He says to them, whoever is fearful, oh, excuse me, back up, um, too many of them, bring them down to the water, I will test them for you there, then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you, and of whoever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and they drank. And in verse 7 says, the Lord says to, to Gideon, by the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Now, some of you might have gone on ahead and read verse 2 without me. And the reason why God only wanted these 300. Verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Otherwise, Israel would claim glory for itself. Against me. Saying, my own hands had saved me. 300 men versus 100. There were only 15,000 left when the Israelites were done. 
We could talk about Hezekiah and 185,000 with the Assyrians. We could talk about a whole host of situations where there, was, there should be absolutely no way these people should go against their enemies and win, if you will. It'd be like me and Levi, who has just turned six years old, wrestling, and having wrestled in high school, having wrestled in college, and Levi having never wrestled, and Levi doesn't having muscles yet <laughs> that, that you would have until you get older, how would he even win? Well, the thing is, if you have God on your side, we know that mentally. If God is on our side, one of our elders wrote an article on that, right? If God is for us, we will win. But sometimes we forget that in our day-to-day walk. And sometimes we depend too much on our expertise, on our abilities, rather than exalting in God who has given all of that to us and giving Him the glory that the things that we've done have brought forth success in whatever we touch. 300 men. There's no way that these could have done it on their own. God must have been behind it. And that's the point. For all the world to know that God is behind it all. How about the contrast in Luke chapter 18 between that righteous, or let me qualify, self-righteous, Pharisee and that lowly tax collector who is despised by so many of the Jews, particularly the, the really religious ones. Look at the contrast in attitude and demeanor and everything between that Pharisee. When that Pharisee was praying, here he is, standing up. I forget, what was it, David last week that was leading us in prayer and had everyone to kneel down so that there was this Humility on our part that we would express before our God. But here's the, the picture given here. Of one who would stand up and lift his eyes to heaven and the other one who could not even look upward to heaven. And notice then the prayer of each of the men that are given here. These are the things that contrast those who would exalt in God and those who, well seem as if they're right there on his side, alongside of him, in holiness, in righteousness, when such is far from true. Luke 18 says here, beginning in verse 9, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus said, two men went up from the temple, or up to the temple, to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I mean, as opposite as you can get for the Jews of the first century. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. So what do you suppose if we just stop and look at that individual? Modernize it. I give 10, I give 15, I give 20% into the treasury every Lord's Day. And I come here Sunday morning, and you know we don't have a Sunday night service, but I still come Sunday night over here. (laughs) And I go to every other congregation of every gospel meeting, which is a ton here in Tennessee, every night of the week. And I do this and I do that. You know, there are brethren that actually look up 
and put on pedestals, brethren, along these lines. And sometimes we forget that while that person, if they were to do it to honor God and to please God, that's great. That's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with all those things. But what happens sometimes is we look down at other Christians that aren't as spiritual as I. I was telling Phil, talking about some of our neighbors where we live, that one of the families in our, on our street is pretty much the black sheep of, of the, at least that subdivision area. Now, I can't speak for all the families and their perspectives, but this is the perspective that they have. It's like, we used to be good friends with everyone here, but now they look down upon us because of, and then they list all the things that were shameful, at least in the eyes of so many of the neighbors. And sometimes that's what happens. You know, I do this, I do this, I do this, I do that, and you're not doing these things, and I'm better than you are. I won't say that because that just sounds like it's full of arrogance, so I won't say it. But I sure display it in my demeanor. I let you know that I am better. That's what this Pharisee, I don't think this Pharisee ever thought that, you know what, I'm arrogant. I don't think he thought that outwardly of himself, but that's exactly the way he's displaying himself before his God. Contrast that with this tax collector standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Was he guilty of sin? Well, he's a tax collector, first of all. Some would say yes. <laughs> that was a job that he did. Maybe he wasn't sin. Maybe he was greedy. Maybe he took way more than he needed and extorted money. His heart was full of humility. And he's asking for God's mercy because he knows God is in control. God is over his life. My sovereign God is the ruler of this universe. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then said, I tell you, in verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. And I'll go and add to our Lord, because it's true in Scripture, when we exalt each other, then we leave God out of that picture. It's not to say that you can't encourage one another and let each other know that you've done a good job and what have you, but sometimes we get to a point where we may exalt one another too highly. Of course, ramification to that is what happens when that brother or sister sins. Then they fall so far in your eyes, in my eyes. It's like, oh, how is that possible? It's possible. Every single one of us, we need the Lord's salvation. We need His mercy. We need His grace. And that's why we exalt in Him and not in ourselves. We are told in 1 Corinthians 26, by the time you get to the end of that verse in this section of Scripture, Paul is wanting to make sure his brethren would not glory in them, but glory in the Lord. He finishes off the statement by saying, let him who glory, glory in the Lord. And if we're to look at the text here, regarding the context of all the division that was at the church in Corinth, wouldn't some of them glory in themselves or in one another? Look at me. Look how spiritual I am. I can speak in tongues. You think tongues are pretty cool. 
I can prophesy. And everyone's like, wow. If I were, if I could prophesy, if I could speak in tongues, man, just think. Everyone would look up to me. That's the mindset sometimes that we might have. And we fail then to glorify our God. And I'm going to finish with this passage of Scripture. Read this so that we are reminded constantly, brethren, that whatever good that we do, we do it as servants of the Lord. Whatever we do as a congregation, it is all to the glory of God. It is also that His name would be magnified among each other and by those who are in this world. That when they see our good works, Matthew 5, they'll see God. They'll glorify His name. So Paul said in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those or, or things which are mighty and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That as it is written, He who glories, let him glory in the Lord. God chose fishermen, tax collectors, people who were despised among the religious elite. He chose them to be his apostles. Our Savior would go and touch lepers. Those who are blind. Those who are ill and otherwise left off as defiled and unfit for Jewish society let alone Middle Eastern society. And he touched them and healed them. And as a great physician went to all those who were spiritually looking for the Messiah because they were unworthy and needed mercy from God. That's what we're talking about. These are the individuals who are ripe for God's name to be exalted. And that's what we need.